If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com slash silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. I was stunned to see that, that the Churchill that I thought I knew, that the Churchill that we we inherit, really, was a man who changed his position um, on a critical issue of peace with Hitler um, by the day and sometimes by the hour. That was Anthony McCartan discussing Winston Churchill's darkest hour. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the first History Extra podcast of 2018. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, we're telling the story behind the latest historical blockbuster, Darkest Hour, with the film's writer, Anthony McCartan. He caught up a little while ago with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So we're here in Penguin's offices in London with screenwriter and novelist Anthony McCartan. Hi, Anthony. Hello. Good morning. Morning. Um, So your book, Darkest Hour, How Churchill Brought Us Back from the Brink, is out now, and it considers a crucial moment in Winston Churchill's leadership, uh, a series of meetings in May 1940, during which Churchill's war cabinet considered a possible peace deal with Hitler. Churchill is often portrayed as this immovable, pugnacious character that was kind of immune to pressures. Um, though you explore um, the hesitation that may have affected him during as this peace deal was considered. So what drew you to this portrayal and particularly this series of events in his career? Well, my journey to dealing with this specific ch- subject was quite circuitous and quite um, stretched over a long time frame. I, I first became aware probably about 10 years ago because I I'm a sucker for a great speech and on my bookshelves I invariably have 
two or three books that variously titled Great Speeches That Change the World. It's a questionable feat whether a great speech can actually change the world. But I think, I believe it can when it's when it's a, a, the right words alloyed to the right idea and delivered by the right person. Um, so in these books anyway, you, you would always find at least one speech by Winston Churchill and often two or three. And... Uh, around this time, I also, after a little bit more research, I found that three of his real doozies had been written and delivered within a four-week period. Um, and that was an extraordinary feat of, of, of pure writing, really, and, 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 uh, and delivery. And it begged the question what sort of forces had spurred him to rise to these magnificent heights of rhetoric. Um, and a little bit more inquiry at that point um, revealed that, well, we were at war. Britain was at war. The, the states of, of uh, Central and, and Western Europe were collapsing by the hour. And it looked like invasion of, of Britain was not only imminent, but possibly a day or two away. Um, so there were these incredible pressures on him. And then I dived into... And it was amazing to me that this is available at you know at your own desk, but you can dive into the the minutes of those meetings in the war cabinet uh, via the national archives and and there um, in little PDFs are, are the secretary's record of who said what during those incredibly perilous days in May 1940. And I was stunned to see that that the Churchill that I thought I knew that the Churchill that we we inherit really um, was a man who changed his position um, on a critical issue of peace with Hitler um, by the day and sometimes by the hour and I, I was not of one mind at all um, I was I went in completely open-minded um, but the facts started to pile up that not only did Churchill consider a peace deal with his Arch enemy, this homicidal maniac Adolf Hitler, but he actually took steps towards it, the first tentative steps towards it, uh, in the form of drafting a memorandum to the the, Briti the Italian ambassador Bastianini to investigate the possibility of Italy being a peace broker between Britain and Nazi Germany. Um, when I discovered that, I thought, wow, kind of eureka. Who knew? This this is a really interesting new take on this man. Um, and it fed into um, a belief that's sort of been percolating away in me since I was an undergraduate, that one of the great perils in society is, is leaders whose minds are always made up, leaders who aren't able to tolerate an, an opposite opinion and snuff it out. Um, and I've always thought that our destiny um, is secured by people with an open mind. And it, we especially need that in our leaders. So to find evidence that Churchill, the, the great warrior, the great firebrand who brooked no doubt and, and was always just had one word in his mind, charge, um, was not in evidence in these in these historical records. Um was was really um, exciting to me and reassuring. And rather than diminish him um, in my eyes, it it, um, it elevated him. 
um, because this image of a man who was uncertain, um, who looked into the um, unthinkable, which was this peace deal with Hitler, um, who weighed that idea um, seriously, um, and then synthesized opposing positions and finally came to a decision, seemed to me not only evidence of his genius, um, but also of the qualities that we should look for in our leaders. So the proposition of peace at this time, could you perhaps talk a little bit about what this proposition was, who the advocates were in the war cabinet and how Churchill had the sense to listen to them and have this open mind about what they faced and um, how he dealt with these people? Well, this, there was an argument that was being formed within this war cabinet. Now, when well, let's, let's do a little bit of history here. Um, so Winston was... An unwanted kind of political figure. Um, he's not the man we know today. And on the 9th of May, 1940, when he when it looked like Chamberlain was going to fall, and the search was on for a new leader, uh, Winston Churchill was pretty far down on the list. If he was known for anything, he was known for overseeing disasters. There'd been Gallipoli. There'd been his uh, the Gold Standard, his failed India policy, um, all manner of, of disasters. In fact, a few weeks before, there'd been a horrific situation in Norway with an invasion by the British Navy that that ended up in catastrophic loss of ships and men. And so, when they were casting about for a new leader, I mean, Winston was an imponderable. Like, oh my God, anyone but Winston. However. In, in the shaping of a unity government, um, the Labour Party insisted on on uh, the only candidate they would accept was Winston Churchill. So the Conservative government, of whom Winston was a figure, um, he was the Lord of, Lord of the Admiralty at that point, went to Winston and um, knocked on his door and after a bit of debate and a question about whether it should be Lord Halifax or, or Winston... Um, and there was an enormous amount of um, support for Halifax. Halifax was very close to the king. Um, he was Chamberlain's choice. Um, he, Halifax may even be have been Halifax's choice. Um, but after a very testing kind of uh, meeting in, in Chamberlain's room, um, where Winston famously stayed silent, uh, when asked, did he see any reason why uh, Lord Halifax, as a lord from the House of Lords, might not be uh, made head of the House of Representatives and become Prime Minister. Uh, Winston stayed silent, and Halifax's desire to push for the premiership apparently collapsed, and he endorsed Churchill. So Churchill ends up PM on May 10th, uh, 1940, and everybody's anticipating more of the same. Um, hot-blooded, um, spur-of-the-moment decisions. As as Roosevelt said of Churchill, about 98% of his ideas are absolute rubbish and dangerous, but 2% are brilliant. And he starts assembling this war cabinet. Well, because it's a unity government, he has to people it with not only his, his, his supporters, but his rivals. So he puts Lord Halifax in there and Chamberlain, of course, um, and members of the representatives of the other parties, the Liberal and the Labour parties. So this is a very um, ununified, 
uh, representation of a unity government. And the two factions sort of started to find themselves in that. And, and they were those headed by Halifax, who supported the idea that at this um, dark, dark moment in, in British history and in European history and world history, it, it only made sense to consider the idea of a peace deal. Why? Because the biggest army the world has ever, ever seen was overrunning Western Europe um, at will. Um, Britain was in full retreat, heading towards Dunkirk, um, where they were quickly surrounded and looked like being on the verge of being annihilated. That would have left Britain completely defenceless, um, except for an amateur army or, you know, dad's army type defense. And in, in those circumstances, um, the moral argument that was being made by Halifax was was the only argument that that had any held any sway in both the movie and the book i hope i capture the sense that halifax is is not an antagonist in this story he is in fact uh, um, making the moral argument you pray that anyone would make in that situation for god's sake you know it had not been that many years since the 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 the, the horrifying numbers of deaths since world war one um Surely we must strain every sinew to find a peaceful way out of this. And Halifax, who was a highly moral man, um, steeped in the in the High Church of England, um, a great patriot, was not talking peace deal um, out of any weakness of character. He was he was expressing his views powerfully, passionately, out of his love of country, and he saw it as the only way to save the country. What he didn't see and what Winston was able to perceive, because partly because of he was such a fantastic student of history, was that here was a tyrant. And you cannot deal with tyrants, as he said, and we have a beautiful scene in the movie performed by Gary Oldman as Winston, where he shouts, you cannot argue with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And he saw um, Hitler for what he was. Um, a person with whom you could not negotiate. And yet, as the days passed, as we get into late May, the facts on the ground um, worsened by the hour. Every military dispatch was another disaster, another disaster, another disaster. The the annihilation of the British troops, the the British expeditionary force, there, there was no way to avoid the fact that it seemed inevitable. That the the entire that entire force of some three hundred and fifty thousand men would be wiped out. Halifax then stepped in and said, "Winston, if you if you won't consider peace talks, I'm prepared to resign." And Winston, um, who knew the moral conviction behind that resignation, it wasn't it wasn't a tactic. It was done out of full conviction and belief on Halifax's part. That seemed to be a tipping point in the debate. And Winston thought, if men such as Halifax are prepared to step down and and and, and walk away um, at this moment, um, perhaps I'm wrong. And that was the seed of the, the entire drama for me. So I decided to do a movie and then subsequently a book um, because of really that moment. 
the ability of someone to think, maybe I'm wrong. There's a great quote, which I probably won't quote correctly, of Oliver Cromwell um, writing to the Archbishop in, in Edinburgh centuries ago, and he said I something like, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, think that you may be wrong. Um, and it's an extraordinary comment. Think it possible you may be wrong. I think there's, that is absolutely a, a prerequisite for for great leadership. Um, and Winston proved himself in that moment capable of thinking that he was wrong. Um, when you began considering the National Archives, the other sources that you considered, mm. um, what were you hoping to find? And were you surprised by the indecision that you found? Yeah, utterly. I, I hadn't suspected it. Uh, yeah, you, you, you go in and you think, OK... Um, I think I know who this guy is. And, and the most delightful thing as a researcher is is when you find contradictions to, to that perception and that perception shatters. But what emerges is someone far more interesting because he's more dimensional. And dimensionality is what, you, is what you're looking for as a writer. He was much more believable. And it was really a, a creatively a kind of rubbing your hands together and going, this is terrific. This is great. I, I know exactly what I can do. And I, and I know more importantly Importantly, um, why this why this story um, needs to be told, why it's really um, important and useful, if I can pull it off, um, and not only me, but everybody then who would join in the making of the film and so forth, um, the director and the actors and so forth, then. and so we we formed a wonderful team, um, and everybody um, who read the script was was convinced that this was worth doing and it was we were somehow bringing bringing news which is is very important um, when you're trying to form your own little army everybody wants to know why we're doing it and why so much money is being spent on this endeavor and if you say well you know that at the heart of it there's something really interesting and, and maybe even valuable in this exercise um, and it makes it easier to recruit people and and easy to convince. So um, the film rapidly came together, and uh, and um, and you know the fruits are now going to be soon viewable by everybody, and we'll see what um, what the great public make of it. Why then do you believe that this um, this commonly held view of him as this? stubborn, stoic character uh, kind of charging Britain forward at this crucial time um, has surpassed then this more nuanced, um, sometimes indecisive character that, that you've explored in the book? I think it's because I'm a New Zealander and I'm coming and telling your British stories and, <laughs> and looking afresh at your own iconography. No, I don't really know. Um, uh, perhaps it was necessary to have this image of him. And and perhaps he did, you know, did quite a good job of creating that impression himself. Certainly his own uh, record of the Second World War, um, he doesn't spend more than a couple of sentences on, on this period of uh, the peace deal with Hitler. Um, he kind of brushes over it. So he was not averse to being a myth maker about his own his own career. And he knew what the Churchill brand was. Um, and he was a he, he was a master at it. You know, he never went anywhere without that cigar. He, he ended up s stopping smoking them all. Um, and But he used to always used to have one in, because he knew it was the image. 
So he he was the architect of that myth, probably the initial architect of it. But then Britain, as it as its influence, as its international influence declined, probably wanted the the Mount Rushmore figure, the invincible leader, the the the, the, the warrior. Um, and it just has light, lain like that for for, for decades. Um, I'm not uh, making any great um, claims for my portrait of him um, being completely revisionist or anything like that. Um, but I I am making a claim that it is from all the research I did and and the researchers who worked on the film and helped me with the book is that we got it right. We 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 really found the the available information um, and we just we let the facts speak for themselves So to see uh, Winston Churchill as this um, singularly minded stubborn figure that some people might regard him as today, do you believe that's to do him a disservice? Yeah, I do, Um, for the reasons I've sort of spoken Yeah, anyone who's only in conversation with himself which is probably the definition of a mind made up is not doing doing us a service, um, and an open mind is what we require. It's what we dearly need, and he proved himself to be open minded. Pedestals, they're for statues, and um, and we have mythologized Winston Churchill. Um, there is there are sides to him, and certainly in the movies I've seen of him, and many of the books, and certainly in the public imagination, you see them. You see him down in just in Westminster with that famous statue. His shoulders are hunched, as if he's leaning forward, as if pushing into a stiff wind, and he's marching forward and so forth. But I never believed that. I've, every human being is capable of doubt. They must be if they're human. I'm only a madman. Is, is is incapable of that, and perhaps um, Hitler never brooked any doubt. But we know what, what sort of leader he was. But no, I, I I spent most of my time on both movie and book looking for other elements to his character that have not seen the light of day. Really, um, I wanted to show his his romanticism, his tenderness with Clemmy. The um, who was the great love of his life and his love for her never wavered nor hers for him and they went through tough times and they were difficult people he he must have been a nightmare to be married to but she was also um, very very highly strung she needed electroshock therapy for to treat her depression later in life so she knew about the black dog as well um and i wanted to so yeah show his his tenderness and his romanticism and the way that he could employ his words to weave a spell for her too, as as a not as a Don Juan or anything. He um, but as a tender man, because the public image of of Churchill is more more that he was born in a bad mood, smoking a cigar. Um, so as far away from that as I could get, I wanted to try and achieve. And secondly, um, I wanted to show his wit. Any quick reading of the man's output of witticisms and epigrams um, shows an incredibly witty man. And it wasn't just dinner table wit, which was easily dispensed. He deployed wit um, strategically, uh, often in the political realm too, where he knew that, um, that 
tense situations or positions of where people were very, very entrenched in their positions, you could break down those walls with humor. And he was famous for doing that. So in, in my dramatization of certain scenes, when people seemed impossibly at odds and were barking at each other, he, he would raise his voice even higher than them. But instead of some vehement statement or aggressive threat, out would come a joke. Um, and boy, I wish I had that, that facility. Um, so yes, wit, I think he, he said somewhere that one cannot understand the most serious things in life unless one understands the most humorous. So he saw the relationship of humor um, and seriousness, and he saw the threat of seriousness, that, it, that if we approach all human problems only with utmost seriousness, um, we're in trouble. Humor has a, has a real role to play in negotiating our way through any crisis. And in your um, book, in your account, in your screenplay, um, something that you explore um, very thoroughly is uh, Winston Churchill's uh, key skill for rhetoric, for his speech making. Mm. What did you find out during your research about the way in which he put his speeches together, the way in which he presented them? He was a tremendous student of rhetoric. I mean, I, 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 I love Winston Churchill for a lot of reasons. One is his admiration for him as a writer. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And in fact, when he died, he had written more, he'd actually published more words than Shakespeare and, and Charles Dickens combined. So just absolutely heroic levels of production as a writer. Um, but since an early age, he'd been a student of speeches. He'd been fascinated by the power of words to galvanize in the hearts of a people a shared locus of feeling. And if you could create that shared feeling in a people and unify them, then the unthinkable could become thinkable. So he read the Greeks, he read the Romans, he, he'd read Cicero, um, he um, he like he was a guy who, for light summer reading, would read the twenty seven volumes of of uh, parliamentary debate, called the Annual Register, and what he was looking for was words that would move, words that would create trust in a public for a leader, and then you could move them into into uh, into a position um, that they had not known that they would they would go. My feeling is that in order to be influential, you must be willing to be influenced. And he was heavily influenced by um, by his scholarship and his study. I'll just read you something here that uh, I thought was very revealing. Winston, when he was young, before and early in his parliamentary career, actually wrote a, an essay called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric. And in it, he expressed his thoughts about about um, the power of great oratory. And he kind of defined great oratory as a, as a clever trick, um, which sounds a bit cynical. But, but if the, if the ends um, justify the means, then he was all for it. And he, he talked about um, fooling the audience with a, quote, a series of vivid impressions, which are replaced before they can be too closely examined and vanish before they can be assailed. So it's essentially um, the, the audience is left with an emotion that 
may not be quite, and they may not be quite sure how they came by it, and may not be inclined to understand why. And I guess we ask ourselves, how often in history have the public been so beguiled by speakers? Well, he wanted to have that that magic. He wanted to be able to wield that 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 piece of sorcery, and be able to take it to a public at the right moment and sway them and turn them. Um, my sense, uh, my my belief is that all leaders, all leaders need luck, and the luck that they need is this: is times com- commensurate with their talents. And in May 1940, Winston had that luck, and we were lucky enough that he was lucky um, because he came in um, with really the only thing that Britain had in that in that hour was words. But I guess the lesson is, if you were left to fight with only one thing, you could do a lot worse than words. Another aspect of Churchill's figure that you explore in your account is his premiership style. And um, there might be some perhaps unexpected factors that you um, explore in your account, such as his naps. Um, could you perhaps talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. oh, he took naps in the afternoon. And he said, you don't miss about with a nap. You have to strip off, go completely naked, hop into bed, take it seriously, get a proper good couple of hours. And then he said, you'll have two days instead of one. And then he would work very late, sometimes to two or three in the morning much to the chagrin of his uh, staff who would be asked who weren't taking naps in the afternoon who would be asked to stay up with them you know past the midnight hour I hear the chimes of midnight um, so uh, he was a taskmaster um, but eccentric as, as all hell I mean he would start the day with um, with a scotch and soda on his breakfast tray beside the bacon and eggs. Um, During the war when milk became unavailable and he hated condensed milk in his tea, so he said to hell with it, um, give me a glass of white wine in addition to the scotch and soda on the breakfast tray. (laughs) So, um, I mean, this wouldn't be tolerated today if the the Daily Express found out that um, Theresa May was having a glass of white (laughs) wine and a scotch and soda on her breakfast tray. (laughs) She would be ushered out of power immediately. But, you know, he wasn't finished there. He had a, a bottle of Paul Roger champagne at lunch um, and uh, and then another in, uh, with his evening meal, um, followed by port and so forth. So, he, you know, by modern standards, he was a functioning alcoholic. Um, but, you know, when you're a genius, which he undoubtedly was, you can, you can get away with murder. And people adored him um, even the ones he gave a tough time to, and his secretaries will attest to his his moods and and um, his tempers and so forth. But they they all fell under his sway and knew that they were assisting and abetting a genius. And in your book, you find a particularly kind of cheeky um, account where um, Winston Churchill records of his first meeting with King George VI when he's about to be asked to, to um, form a government. Mm. Um, and perhaps you could talk a little bit about that and, and perhaps the king's reservations at this stage as well. Yes, well, like all PMs, he was called to the palace and asked to form a government and he shows up and uh, the king apparently said... Um, Mr. Churchill, I assume whether well, I won't do the stutter. <laughs> I suspect you know why I have summoned you here. And uh, to which Churchill replied, "Your Majesty, I simply have no idea." Um, so that was that, that. That moment had to be had to be recreated, um, and still lively done. But uh, we know from diaries, uh, the King's diary, uh, that 
he was not in favour of Winston at the beginning. There was a, a quite a terse um, atmosphere between the two of them. The king, as I said earlier, favoured Halifax. Um, Halifax was the only member of government who the king had given a personal key to, to so that he could shorten his walk to parliament and he could cut through Buckingham Palace. So he had a, he had a key to the garden gate. So, yes, they were very close, Halifax and the king. But it was Winston with whom the king would have to deal. And pressing on the king, apart from everything else, was was the question of whether he should be moved to Canada and whether he should take his family and somehow rule in exile or, you know, um, escape from the fray. So he wanted Winston's opinion on, on those kind of matters. But they began to spend time together. They had to have an audience uh, with each other once a week. And during those meetings and when the king saw... Um, the brilliant gifts that Winston produced, um, then uh, he was quickly swayed and turned in his opinion of of Winston. And his diaries within four months of um, Winston becoming PM show a real warming towards Winston. And and by the end of the war, it's said to be one of the closest relationships ever enjoyed by a PM and a king. So they became um, firm friends and colleagues and collaborators and and the king was a vital support to uh, to Winston as the war went on and vice versa so the film um of your screenplay is out later this year starring um, Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill um, and you wrote in a piece for History Extra last month um, that we've seen more ink expended on Churchill than on any other figure in history mm. why then do you believe it's so valuable to reconsider him um, in this year in 2017 um, well he's he, uh, I think he's the greatest Briton that ever lived um, and he's he was he was great when we needed someone to be great. He wasn't great across the vast expanse of his career. Um, he was a kind of a, a sub Boris Johnson for much of his. Dis, uh, forgive me, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, for impugning you in that way. Um, but um, even Boris would admit he's he's um, he's spo- he's a spontaneous character. He says a lot of stuff for effect, um, and he, he's but he's undoubtedly smart as well. And and Boris and Winston are, are both sort of um, historians. I I really love Boris's book on Winston. I thought it was tremendous. Um, but uh, but Winston as a figure um, in the, in these times is clearly. Uh, a kind of um, beacon of candor or something. I, I'm straining here a little bit to get at what I'm feeling, but but there's something about Winston that was incapable of um, intrigue and deceit. And, and that's why the public really loved him, I think. If there was one thing, apart from the words and the stirring speeches... Um, it would be the fact that he 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 levelled with them. He gave it to them as it was, unvarnished, and that was often at his own cost. 
I mean, it's not easy to be told, I imagine, when you're huddled around a radio in 1940, that, you know, we will fight until we lie upon the ground um, choking in our own blood or that um, victory at all costs, no matter you know, no matter what the cost. Um, we will fight them here. We will fight them in your homes. We'll fight them in your living rooms, on the landing grounds. We will be fighting them in, in your schools. We'll be, um, you know, wherever you can consider your intimate space, you will be asked to fight for your survival. Um this was really shocking news. It wasn't varnishing. He wasn't dressing it up, and he and he gave it to them straight, and so that they could make their own frank evaluation of whether they would support him. Were they up for it? And they decided in in vast numbers um, that they did. And um, I think that most lovable quality of his, this candor, this. This tell it how it is 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 what we miss these days. There's tremendous distrust in our leaders, and and a leader now says, "I've just been in America," and they have this awful phrase um, to walk something back, walk a statement back. I think Reagan coined the phrase, "Oh, I, I misspoke." Well, we th- that's another awful sort of paraphrasing of the word lie. You well, you mean you lied? Um, but you know Donald Trump is saying something, and then he, the next moment they say, oh, he he rode back on that statement, or he walked back on that statement. Well, then you've just done injury to language, and you've done injury to political discourse, and you've done injury um, to what we want from a leader, which is candor. Winston never walked anything back, and the reason he didn't was he didn't have to, because he told it straight the first time. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much um, for talking to us about your account, Anthony. Um, the book is out now. It's Darkest Hour, How Churchill Brought Us Back from the Brink. And the film Darkest Hour is out on general release later this year. So thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. So that was Anthony McCartan talking to Eleanor Evans. Darkest Hour is already on release in several countries around the world, and will be in UK cinemas from the 12th of January. And if you'd like to read more on this subject, then look out for our January issue, which goes on sale later this week and contains a piece on Churchill's struggle to keep Britain in the war. Meanwhile, you can also read a piece by Anthony McCartan about Churchill on our website. Head to historyextra.com forward slash Churchill at war for that. And Anthony has written a book that accompanies the film, which is also entitled Darkest Hour. It's available now, published by Viking in the UK and Harper Perennial in the US. OK, so that's about it for today, but please do listen in again on Thursday when we'll be talking to Ron Chernow about Alexander Hamilton. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.
Black voices are making an impact this month and beyond. Keep listening to discover one of our favorite shows, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but the truth remains indisputable. I'm Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and every day I'll be bringing you a full dose of truth on my show, Indisputable. We cover criminal justice, social justice, politics, racism, police brutality, and everything in between. I even make space for conservative voices, but not before they step into the bullpen, where I debate them on their policy agenda. In January, I hosted They Called Him Radical, a special tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It features myself, Senator Nina Turner, Ricky Smiley, and Sharon Reed. Together, we reflected on Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, his real legacy, and considered what we can all do to continue to fight for a better world. Listen to Indisputable and They Called Him Radical on Apple Podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.